Good morning. It's good to see you, church family. Um, we're going to continue today uh, walking through uh, the book of Philippians as we, uh, as we journey together through that book, and we'll be in chapter two again today. And what a morning uh, to sing of our rock and our redeemer. Uh, he is good to us. Are any of you guys watching the Olympics? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I feel like the Olympics are like not as people, not as many people watch the Olympics as as did in years past. Maybe everybody says that every generation, but um, but I, I feel like the Olympics uh, is a uh, I, we, my family's we've been watching it in the evenings and uh, it's I feel like it's like the it's just a great reminder of how I underachieved as an athlete. Um, I uh, we're we're watching the, these guys swimming and I'm just like man, I need to like find some goggles and get to the pool. I don't think, I don't think I could, like, there's just something different about them. I look at them and I look at me and I go, maybe it's the pool. So I'm going to try to get there. Um, <laughs> it's probably more than the pool. The, uh, it's, uh, but it's also a great time to jump and to cheer for people whose names I didn't know before this week. Um, that's exciting. Um, Caleb Dressel, the swimmer, amazing. Um, I, but, but never, I didn't know who he was before this week, but he's fantastic. Um, just so many cool people to watch and to listen, to hear their stories. Um, in fact, some of the sports, uh, it's like, man, I don't even know that I knew the rules of this sport beforehand, but I'm really into it now. Um, that's the great part. I'm here for it. I'm here for the Olympics. That's exciting. And one of the best things, I think, is hearing them talk after a, a victory or after an event. Um, and uh, just to hear the athletes speak, so many of them are just normal. Uh, like, they're just very normal. There's, there's like teenage kids talking as though like they just got out of chemistry class and they, you know, they, they just, but they just beat people you know, from around the world in this event. It's amazing. Um, and they're really, they really are just happy to be here. Like that, that's, that's, they're, they're just so humbled and excited to be participating and which is such a fantastic contrast to so many professional athletes we see, not to name any names, but we had some particular players, even in our own city, uh, whose, uh, if you ask them about how they, uh, about how great they are, they would say, yeah, I'm great. Yeah, I'm great. I'm the greatest. Uh, and how dare you say otherwise? Um, and I think as, as a Christian, uh, the humility of seeing these Olympic athletes resonates because deep down, that's, that's our life in the grace of Christ, uh, that we're just happy to be here. Uh, we're out here working, out here living our lives, but, but everything in light of the cross feels like a gift. Even when we succeed, I think we struggle to receive compliments. We, we struggle to receive praise, and, and that's good. Uh, but there's also a part of us that's not like that at all. Uh, we are entitled we feel like we've earned our way. And at the very slightest hint of difficulty or disrespect, uh, we complain, we grumble. And last week we looked at the incredible example of Christ and how he served us. But today Paul's gonna show us what happens when the magnitude of that humble service and his grace hits our lives. And so as we move through the text today, I want us to see three ways uh, that Paul encourages us uh, to live our lives in light of the cross. Number one, humble work. Number two, radical contentment. And number three, brilliant rejoicing. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, we need your help. Uh, we need your grace in our life uh, to even hear when you speak, to even have hearts that are soft to your word um, and to have, have lives that um, by, by your grace alone, 
uh, do we heed and listen? And so, Father, would you do a work today by your spirit? Would we hear, would we hear your words speak to us? Uh, would, would we not hear my words, but, Father, would they be yours? And would, and would you speak to us in such a way that we, would, um, that we would repent of sin, that we would turn to Jesus, and that we would walk in obedience, walk in faith and contentment with you? We love you. And it's in Christ's name. Amen. So number one, a humble work. He says in verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, Paul is, is, is so encouraging to them. And this is, this is, we see this a lot in this letter. I'm sure he could have pointed to a hundred way, ways in which they haven't obeyed. They haven't always obeyed, but he wants them to know, hey, I, I see your obedience. I see God's grace at work in your life. And he's telling them, you're already doing it. You're already doing it. This Christ-like humility, this putting others before yourselves as you've all already been obeying that. Uh, that's been a hallmark of your fellowship. I've seen it up close. Then he's saying, so keep at it, keep working. And I think we could get tripped up on Paul's language here. Um, our English translations really, really bring weight to bear on the phrase, work out your salvation. I think we really key in on that. Um, but I think he's pairing work out with obedience. He's saying, you've already been obeying, so keep obeying, keep working it out. Keep working according to your salvation. Uh, and, and I think some, some would, uh, I think sometimes folks might take this passage and make it all about, a sermon about work. But I, I think if, if we see the weight of what Paul's saying, it's, 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 work is not his emphasis. Uh, but before we, before we move, I do want to mention the idea of work, that the life of a Christian really is a life of working for God. We're supposed to work hard. We're supposed to uh, pour ourselves out, Paul says. By all means, the gospel is not opposed to effort. And that can be, uh, I think, a theological trap uh, to believe that because the Christian life is a life of grace, uh, that to work hard, to discipline yourself is antithetical to the gospel. Uh, sometimes maybe you've even, you've even read, oh, I, don't, I don't even use a Bible reading plan. I don't want to be too legalistic. No, no, we still do discipline ourselves. The, the scriptures exhort us to do so, to work hard. Uh, Paul says in uh, Colossians 5, he says, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. I think that's the, the heartily, that's the word the ESV uses. Uh, Galatians 6, Paul says, uh, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. In Romans 12, Paul says, don't lack diligence and zeal. Other translations don't say, don't be slothful. And don't be lazy about zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord, he says. Uh, Peter, even in Second Peter uh, chapter one, he says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with, uh, with self-control and knowledge. Uh, he's saying, make effort, give effort. And then Paul says of his own ministry in Colossians one, he says, we proclaim him, Jesus. Uh, he's proclaiming the gospel, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then Paul says, I labor for this striving with his strength that works powerfully in, in me. He, Paul's working. No one could make the argument that the gospel is anti-work. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. 
So even when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my, my burden is light, this isn't about Jesus offering us a life free of effort. No, you, you've, you, he's saying you've been set free from the burden, the heavy burden of the law uh, by my perfect life. He, he, he did it for you. He gave you his righteousness through his death and his resurrection. How, why? So that you can now uh, be free to, to work, free to serve and to follow him by grace, not to earn it. So we're exhorted to work, yes, but I don't think that's primarily what the passage is about. In fact, the word uh, that Paul uses, this phrase is more an idea of, of, of producing, of, of working out, of, uh, we might even say, of, of working according to our salvation, in the manner of our salvation. Uh, but, but even that, the way Paul forms the sentence, it seems his emphasis is less on work and more on the posture with which we work. So see, see how he lays it out. He says, therefore, in light of the call to consider others more important yourselves. So you say, what's it there for? In light of this, in light of what we saw last week about Jesus humbled himself. Therefore, you've, always, you've already obeyed. You've always obeyed. You've always been faithful and followed Jesus. So now with fear and trembling, that word actually comes first in the Greek text, with fear and trembling, work according to your salvation. Work out your salvation. So basically keep going. Keep obeying, keep, keep living according to your salvation. But now that you've seen the humble Christ, do it with fear, do it with trembling. Such an interesting choice of words. Paul could have described their Christian life in a dozen other ways, right? He could have said, hey, work out of your, out your salvation with diligence and discipline or with courage and faithfulness. Work, work out your salvation with love and steadfastness, uh, with compassion and patience, and certainly Paul uses those words in other places, uh, but, but why fear? Why trembling? And so we have to ask, fear of what? Fear of, of God. Fear of God. To be awestruck, to be amazed by God. To get near God and then realize he is bigger than I imagined. His power, his holiness. And then trembling. Trembling about what? Trembling about me. Oh man. I am, I'm weak. I'm, I'm unable. And so how do, how do those things uh, help us to walk? In 2018, my family went on, um, well, I think one of the, one of the, probably the best trip we've ever taken together as a family. Um, and, and on that trip, went to the, what I think is the coolest place we've ever been to, um, which was we spent a few nights camping um, in the uh, Sequoia National Forest in California. Um, and if you've never been there, I mean, the giant sequoia trees are unbelievable. I mean, we're talking about trees that are, that are like nearing the diameter of this room. I mean, unbelievable. That's probably a little bit of exaggeration, but they're, I mean, huge, massive. We, our, our family lined up arm to arm like this, couldn't get halfway. I mean, we got like halfway across the diameter of one of the trees. It's amazing. Um, and and uh, we're, so we're up there in the mountains, uh, camping, fantastic. Right on the front end of our trip, uh, the first morning we wake up, we say, hey, this is beautiful. Uh, before we go see some of the huge trees, let's take, this, let's take a little hike around our campsite. Uh, it's, there's a lot of rock formations. And so we hike up and it's a beautiful place. There's a pretty little stream. Uh, and the stream at some point flows off into uh, a, 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 off as a waterfall. I mean, just amazing. Um, and of course, we probably weren't really fully prepared uh, to be master hikers on this trip. Um, we had our three-year-old daughter, Hallie, who was, who was we're kind of helping along, letting her kind of do it on her own. 
Um, and then and my oldest son, Judah, probably didn't have like the best uh, hiking shoes um, prepared for such a thing. And there's a longer version of this story, but I'm gonna get you the, 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 the quick one. Judah gets a little too close to the stream. Um, and he takes an unplanned ride down a 15 to 20 foot waterfall. Yeah, it sounds terrifying because it was terrifying. Um, and uh, kind of out of our sight, like, oh man, this, Larry went Judah. Um, and when he emerged from the pool below, uh, relatively unscathed, our family had a conversation that went something like this. These mountains are way bigger than you. Way bigger. Fear the mountain. And be very, very wary of your own capabilities. You are not bigger than the mountain. You are not more cap- you're not as capable as you think you are. And, and, and for the rest of the time that we were there, uh, we walked a little differently. That day was a little different. Uh, we didn't stop hiking. Like, man, we went for it. We went to this crazy hike, really, really high, uh, but we stood a little bit closer to the mountain uh, rather than to the edge. Uh, we walked a little more aware of where we were, a little more aware of the power around us and with a little more respect for how small we truly were. Fear and trembling. It changes how you walk. This is humility in action. Humility isn't a heads down, a woe is me sort of posture. No, it's, it's courageous. It's bold. It's active. It's, it's, it's effort. But with proper reverence, proper understanding of how great God is, and with a lot less trust in self. It's our way of saying, along with John the Baptist, he must increase. Not that he's getting bigger, but in my estimation, he must be bigger. And in my view of things, I must decrease. I must be smaller. So yes, Christian, we work, we obey, but we do it with fear and with trembling. And this may sound burdensome, but here's the promise. Verse 13, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Don't let that feeling of humility uh, discourage you. No, let it embolden you. God is at work in you. Do, you. do you believe that? He's working in you. You can actually serve others. Why? Because God is at work in you. It's not just you. You can actually serve in a way that you haven't. You can actually start a ministry initiative. You can use your time and your money for the kingdom. Why? Because it's not just you. It's God who's at work in you. Is it you working? Yes. God doing the work? Yes. I think to confuse the idea that God is sovereign over the activity of our lives with the reality that we too are responsible for what we do is to get stuck in a theological wormhole. Uh, We're not meant to be demotivated by the sovereignty, uh, the sovereign working of God in our lives. No, we're meant to be bolstered by it. We're meant, to, we're meant to remember, oh, he's with me. He is working. And how specifically is he working? What, what is he doing in you? Paul says he's working in you both to will and to work for his purpose. God is changing you and he's helping you. He's helping you work. He's helping you bring about work 
and, and, and be productive for his good purpose. But he's also working on your will. He's also working on your desire. By his grace, he's helping you want to do uh, his will. So this means we can ask the Lord for both things. Are you frustrated by the lack of obedience in your life, by, by your lack of activity or follow through? And you can ask God for help. Students, parents, as you get ready for a new school year, ask the Lord, God, give me insight. Help me to walk in greater discipline. Help me to be faithful with my Bible reading, faithful with my schoolwork. Help me to be faithful with my friends who don't know you. Help me to work for you. Help me in my work. Or maybe you find yourself lacking desire. I, you know, I, I don't want what is good. I feel sluggish. I feel unmotivated. Well, the Lord cares about your desires. He cares about your will. So it's, so it's not wrong to ask him to change your heart. Lord, help me. Help me to have zeal for good works. Change my heart. Break my heart for my friends who don't know you. Help me to love the things that you love. Christian, you can really live life according to the good purpose of God. Like you can. You can live a life that is according to his purposes. And here's the promise why. is because he's at work in you. It's not just up to you. He's changing you. He's sanctifying you. And it's for his purposes. One of the most dangerous ways we can live is to acknowledge that God saved us. But then to say, okay, you saved me, God, but, I, but I've got it now. I'm going to work for you now. No, you will not, you will not live like Jesus without Jesus. Now, our prayer has to be, Lord, I need you. I need you. Every hour, I need you. And he hears that. He hears us. So we don't have to be afraid. He's at work in us. Ask him for help. And then work hard. That's, that's humble work with fear and trembling. Number two, radical contentment. So what, is humble, what does the humble worker look like? Verse 14 do everything without grumbling and arguing. So I know this is not a very applicable uh, verse for, the, for our day and age. People really don't grumble or complain or argue these days. Um, oh, they, I think I'm wrong about that. Um, it's, it's amazing, right? It's amazing the sort of things that we complain and argue about. And they're all different types of, of, of grumbling some folks complain about work, right? Man, my boss, man, they're just, you don't even know the stuff I put up with. That's the stuff we hear around here. Just kidding. Um, some of us complain and argue about the government, right? You know, you have friends like that where it's like, man, oh, they're gonna be here tonight. It's just gonna be more of, man, but the president this or the Congress this or man, the GOP that. Or, I mean, it's, that's, 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 their, that's, that's what's happening, right? Lots of it. There's the weather complaining guy. Man, we are, all, are we all that guy? It's so hot, man. I don't know. I wish I lived somewhere else right now. Um, there's, the, uh, there's the, man, I'm so busy complaint that is just the, it's like the mantra of the day. Some of us save all of our complaining for social media, right? That's what social media is, isn't it? It's like if Twitter must, we could just rename it. Uh, complaints. Um, 
that, you know, you could, you could go through life. I haven't said anything on social media for months and then you'll just see somebody after months of silence go, you know what, today was horrible and I'm gonna tell everybody. I mean, we just want everyone to know how bad something was, how terrible my life is. But some of us save all of our complaining for home. Our spouse can't do anything right. Our kids frustrate us. Man, Amy and I have been in the process of, of moving um, and God has blessed us um, to be able to move into the heart of Tomball, to be back uh, closer to the church building and closer to the church family. It's really a blessing. Um, and I can hear it. I can hear it all the time in my own heart and coming out of my own mouth. Man, that really frustrates me. I hate this thing about this part of the house or man, the water just takes too long to get to the shower. Uh, the, the hot water, t- I mean, I'm just standing here waiting for it. Um, uh, is the bed hard to you? I don't know. I mean, it just feels a little hard. Uh, I can, I personally, I can be a, a, a veritable Goldilocks um, where I will complain about just about anything that is just not right, not just, just not quite right for me. And whether we're complaining and arguing about the softness of the bed or about very difficult things we're going through in life, Paul is saying that our complaints, our grumbling, they are no small thing. Now I wanna stop for just a minute and I wanna define some terms because this, this is important. Because um, we, we need to understand the, importance, the important difference between complaining and grumbling, which we're commanded not to do, versus lamenting which can be good. There's a whole book of the Bible devoted to lament. And I think the answer is this. When when I lament, God is in view. Lamenting acknowledges my pain, my suffering, the fallenness of the world, acknowledges my difficulty, but, but sees Jesus as the answer. And God invites us to lament, to cast our burdens on him. He invites us to share our laments and our sorrows with our brothers and sisters that might, they might shoulder them with us. God knows our sorrows. To lament our pain is an exercise of faith because lamenting actually believes that no matter what, God is with me. But when we complain, when we grumble, God is often not in view at all. Instead, I am in view. And if God is in view in our grumbling, he's often, he's often the, the object of our complaint. In fact, I think Paul is pointing to that very reality, that all of our complaining, all of our arguing, these are actually complaints against God himself. And how do I know that's what Paul is talking about? I think it's because he's making a pretty clear reference to a time when God's people complained before. He's saying this is not a new thing. God's people have always been tempted to complain and he looks backward and he uses the same language that Moses used in Deuteronomy when Moses said God's people are a devious and crooked generation. You may remember this story. God had used Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. He rescued them, performed miracles. But after all God had done, time and again, what did they do? They complained. God's people complained to Moses. They complained about God. And and you may not remember this part, but at the end of Moses' life, he writes a song for the people. Moses liked uh, writing songs. 
this, this was his, uh, and this was like his swan song. If you've, for, for all you Hamilton people out there, this was like George Washington's moment, one last time uh, at the end of his administration. And what a way to go out on this, with this song from Moses in Deuteronomy 32. I wanna give you like a little snippet. Um, he, he, he said this or sang this. <clears throat> for I will proclaim the Lord's name, declare the greatness of our God, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God without bias. He is righteous and true. And here's the, here's the really great part of the song. His people have acted corruptly toward him. This is their defect. They are not his children, but a devious and crooked generation. Is this how you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Isn't he your father and creator? Didn't he make you and sustain you? I don't know what the tune was, but I'm sure it was super catchy. Um, <laughs> uh, but now Paul, with using some very similar language, he says to us, you need to trust, you need to obey your father in everything without complaint. That means everything he leads you through, every sickness, every missed opportunity, every mistreatment, every, every annoying neighbor, every time the, the waiter gets the order wrong, every time a friend or a spouse fails you every time a leader fails you, every time someone disagrees strongly with you on social media. Follow Jesus in everything without complaining. And what will happen if you do in verse 15? So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. Notice that Paul says, it, it won't actually be you like the Israelites. This time it won't be you God's people who are the crooked and the twisted. No, you actually, if you can walk without complaint, if you can walk in contentment, that even, even, the whole, even though the whole world around you is crooked and twisted and perverted, uh, complaining and arguing, if, if, if that, they're that kind of generation, you will stand out. And this, isn't this the world that we live in? Entire communities of people built around complaints, and grumbling. It's, it's like the native tongue of the world around us. And so we have to ask, is it yours? Are your friendships and communities full of complaining, full of quarreling and arguing? Why are we like this? David Pallison, um, who was a, a fantastic uh, counselor, uh, who loved the Lord, said, uh, the mind of man is a factory of idols. He's quoting Calvin there. He says, we're infested with lusts. Listen closely to any person uh, given to complaining and you will observe the creativity of our cravings. And James 4, James says it this way. He says, what's the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. The Bible is saying your, your complaining points to what you really want. What your flesh says will really make you happy. So think now back to the Israelites. Through Moses, God took his people out of slavery. They were enslaved to a ruthless, murderous dictator. We saw this in Hebrews 11. And he did it, how? By showing his power. He, he rained down plagues on them. He, he decimated the enemy. He showed the people of God that, that, that he's more powerful than their enemies. 
And so he takes them out of Egypt. And as soon as they escape and they end up trapped at the Red Sea, what do they do? They complain. Did did God just bring us out here to die? And so what did God do? God parted the sea so that they could escape. And he crushed Pharaoh behind them. And only So they've walked through the middle of the sea that's been parted for them. And a few days later, only a few days later, the people say, we're hungry. There's not enough food out here. And so they complain again. "Did, Did God just bring us out here to starve? And God shows up again. He provides for them. He literally rains down bread and quail for them to eat. And only a few days after that, They cry and complain again. We're thirsty. Did God bring us out here for our families and our cattle so that we might thirst to death? And again, God in his mercy, through Moses, he brings water from a rock for them to drink. And then when Moses took too long to come back uh, from meeting with God on Mount Sinai, the people complain. We don't know what's taking Moses so long. We will feel better if we have a God to worship. And so they fashion a golden calf and they worship it. So God disciplines them, but still in his mercy, he provides. He brings them to the promised land. And when they reach the promised land, the place they had longed for, they see there that there are dangerous people that live in the promised land, dangerous inhabitants. And what do they do? They complain again. If only we had just died in Egypt. Maybe if we died in the wilderness, that would be better. Did God just bring us here to die this time by the sword? All sorts of accusations toward God. Oh, and then they tried to kill Moses. That's a fun story. Um, So Moses' words don't seem so harsh now, do they? He calls them a crooked and devious generation. God saved his people again. And again, but they're complaining, they're grumbling, pointing to a different treasure. They loved comfort. They loved security more than God himself. And their complaints, they're despairing, they're arguing. It showed their ultimate lack of trust in God to provide those things. So Paul says, now he's turning back to us in Philippians 2 and he's comparing us to them a little bit and he And so the question to us is, what has God done for us? You were enslaved in sin. Check that, you were dead. Even even better than Moses, Jesus made you alive. You were lost, you were alone, but the servant King Jesus, we saw it last week, he emptied himself to come be with you. You couldn't walk in obedience. You couldn't escape your shame. And so Jesus became obedient for you all the way to a shameful death on a cross. And you were not a people, but by the kindness of God, by the kindness of our father, you were adopted into a family. By the fellowship of his spirit, you'll never be alone. And oh yeah, he's taking you to a promised land too, to a new earth. And yet we complain and argue just like they did because we don't have the life that we want because our family is not what we had hoped because our church slash government slash school, whatever, fill in the blank, is not what we wanted. 
God, this is, this is what you saved me for. What about prosperity? What about abundance? Did you leave me, leave me out of sin and out of slavery to sin just so that I could suffer? Are we not still kind of like that generation? That crooked generation? But I think this is incredible. Catch this. Paul, by God's grace, Paul doesn't call us a crooked generation. No, instead, he has just told us God is working in you. He's changing you according to his purpose. So by the power of his work within you, you really can be content. You can really know the peace that passes understanding. You can really experience humility and contentment instead of complaining, instead of grumbling, instead of arguing. Why? Because he's in work within you. He's bringing these things about. You don't have to be a complaining people. God is changing. He's changing your work. He's changing your will. Which brings us to our last point. Number three, brilliant rejoicing. So when we are a contented people, when we are walking by his spirit, and what are the fruit of his spirit? Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, Gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. When we're walking by his spirit, these, those, are really the, those fruit are really the opposite of grumbling, right? He says, here's what's gonna happen if you walk in that sort of contentment. He said, you will be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. So when you refuse to complain because you're convinced of God's provident kindness in your life, you will shine. You'll stick out. You know what shines in our world today? Kindness, humility, contentment. You know what shines? Encouragement. People, we don't encourage each other, do we? Why? Because we're so self-focused. We're, we're too busy complaining about what we don't have, that we don't see God's grace in others. Some of, some of, you, some of you are encouragers. I mean, it's amazing. And you bring, you bring light into dark places with your encouragement. My brother, Chris Beach, uh, meant no matter the difficulty that I, I've walked through or seen him walk through, ne- never grumbling against God, never complaining, always speaking words of life, words of encouragement. That shines. I've seen others do the same. I've seen, uh, I've seen Debbie Perkle do that. I've seen Philip Worley, people who speak encouraging words, words of life uh, in, in, in difficult circumstances. That shines. And just to be clear, this this doesn't rule out speaking up when you're mistreated. No, this doesn't doesn't remove the need for correction or for a rebuke. But even when correction or rebuke must be given, even when sin needs to be pointed out, you know what really shines? Correction offered in love. Rebuke offered with humility and with tears. That, That stands out like a light in the dark. And I don't even think we always name it or call it or or recognize what what we're seeing when we see it, but we do know it. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about what it's like to really be around humble people. Um, And he described the humble person like this. It's so so great. 
It says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble uh, man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who's always telling you that of course he is nobody. Probably you will, all you will think about him is that he seems to be a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That sort of humility shines like a blazing star in a dark world. And Paul says, that's, that's what you will be like. That's what you will be like as the Lord works in you, as he shaves complaining out of your life and, and plants contentedness. And he closes by saying, again, even if I die, I'm not, I have no reason to complain. I'm rejoicing, he says. And he says, we can do that too. Verse 17, he says, but even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. You wanna stop being a complaining person? Start rejoicing. Rejoice in the mercies of God. That's what Paul's doing here. Even if I give all, even if I die, I'm still glad. Still glad because of God. I mean, what, what's the biggest thing any of us could complain about? It would be, I'm walking through a really difficult thing and I might die. And Paul says, even then, you can be glad. Even if you give it everything, even if you die serving others, even if you lose everything, even if you never get recognized, even if you never get your thorn removed, your physical pain never alleviates, you can still rejoice. That doesn't mean you can't lament those things, but you can still rejoice. Why? Because those circumstances are not the ground for your rejoicing. The ground of our rejoicing is Christ. And he is not dead. He is alive right now and he's yours. And this is what it means to live with death as gain. And so when you're tempted to complain, fix your eyes on Jesus. Think of his kindness. Later this week, or maybe even later today, when you realize you're complaining about something, and you will, like you're gonna catch yourself. When you catch yourself complaining about something, just stop and say, I'm sorry I'm complaining. Just like whoever you're talking to, just apologize in the moment. And if you're, uh, and, and then immediately just acknowledge, God's been way too good to me. God's been really good to me. And if you're by yourself and you're just complaining in your own heart, find somebody else and just tell them, God's, been, God's given me way more than I deserve. Way more than I deserve. I want to close with this description from Charles Spurgeon about a life of, of praise instead of complaint. He says this. He says, if we complained less and praised more, we should be happier. And God would be more glorified. 
Let us daily praise God for common mercies, common as we frequently call them and yet so priceless that when deprived of them, we are ready to perish. Let us bless God for the eyes with which we behold the sun, for the health and strength to walk abroad, for the bread we eat, for the raiment we wear. Let us praise him that we are not cast out among the hopeless or confined amongst the guilty. Let us thank him for liberty, for friends, for family associations and comforts. Let us praise him, in fact, for everything which we receive from his bounteous hand. For we deserve little and yet are most plenteously endowed. But beloved, the sweetest and the loudest note in our songs of praise should be of redeeming love. God's redeeming acts toward his chosen are forever the favorite themes of their praise. If we know what redemption means, let us not withhold our sonnets of thanksgiving. We have been redeemed from the power of our corruptions, uplifted from the depth of sin which we were naturally plunged. We've been led to the cross of Christ. Our shackles of guilt have been broken off. We are no longer slaves, but children of the living God and can antedate the period when we shall be presented before the throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Even now by faith, shall we not unceasingly give thanks to the Lord, our Redeemer? Child of God, canst thou be silent? Awake, awake you inheritors of glory and lead your captivity captive as you cry out with David. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. In just a couple chapters, Paul is gonna say, if there's anything praiseworthy, anything worthy of, of praise, anything honorable, that's Christ. Think on those things, dwell on those things. That's what contentment will do. And this glorifies Jesus. This kills complaining. This is how we will shine as brilliantly as stars. Jesus's glory will shine to those around us. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need your help with this. From moment to moment, Father, we are, we are we're self-focused. We think of ourselves, we, we consider our needs, we consider our trials, we consider um, how, how we are affected or impacted and, and God, it's because we take our eyes off of you. And so would you bring about within us, would you bring fear of you? Fear, reverence, awe, um, just amazement at how great you are. And when we see our weakness before you and yet your kindness that you would still be at work in us, God, let that humble us and let it drive complaining and grumbling and self-pity. Let it drive those things away from us that we might rejoice in your amazing provision to us. So help us with this. We, we, we really need you. We need, your, we need you to be at work within us. And we thank you that you are. And so Father, uh, we love you. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.